King James Version of the Bible, that's the Pew Bible, if you care to open it to Matthew chapter 16, we'll be looking and reading verses 24 through the end of the chapter, verse 28. When Je then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it, man, if he gains the whole wide world and loses his own soul? Or what will be a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Before we get started, I want to remind you about these bags on the stage. And I'm going to ask our camera operator to zoom out to get the whole stage uh, for the audience that's watching at home, uh, because I couldn't see these bags last week when I was watching from home. But, th but this is an amazing opportunity we have, in case you are unfamiliar with it. These are uh, gift bags to be given out to uh, medical professionals. And we're asking you, as, as, as members of our congregation, to grab some bags. Uh, if you work in the medical field, take them to, to people that you work with. If you're going to the doctor this week, Take a few of these, and, and, and if the office will let you drop them off to them, drop them off. They, uh, they have some supplies in them, like hand sanitizer and tissues and hand lotion and also some little snacks and, and goodies. We're just trying to show that we care about our, our medical professionals in their variety of capacities during this time, and we want to uh, share the love of Christ with them through this small avenue. So be sure to grab a bag before you head home and, and, and take it to somebody you know that could use it in the medical field. And that, that'll be one way we can serve our community at this time. And thank you to everyone who came out and stuffed the bags, to everyone who donated supplies to go in the bags, and everyone who's already uh, taken these and, and dropped them off at places. We've had a few posts on social media announcing uh, some hospitals and some doctor's offices that have received these. And that is a, a beautiful thing, so we encourage you to continue that. And the reason I'm plugging this today is because it's taken up my stage. I can't walk everywhere. <laughs> no, in all honesty, we want to do this for the community. So be sure to grab some bags uh, on your way out today. Uh, on the screen, you can see I've got a picture of a cat and a dog. Now, it wasn't that long ago, it was just within the past two months, that in the midst of a sermon, I declared that dogs are better than cats. And I stand by it. And in the aftermath of that sermon, I received several comments uh, from members who either sided with me and agreed that dogs were the exceptional uh, pet, but I had some who disagreed, who loved their feline friends and 
stand up for their feline friends. And in that sermon, I said that if any animal gets to heaven, it will not be a cat. And today I want to defend that assertion. And here's why I believe that. If you bring a dog home, and you feed that dog, and you take care of that dog, and you give it what it needs, you know what that dog is going to do? That dog is going to look at you and think to himself, you must be my master. If you bring a cat home, and you feed that cat, and you take care of that cat, and you do everything that cat needs, you know what that cat's going to think? Ah, I must be your master. And that's why cats won't go to heaven, because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Cats don't understand denial of self. So there's my argument for why cats won't be in heaven. But in all seriousness, this concept of denying the self can be difficult for us at times to understand. Jesus made it very clear that in order for us to be one of his disciples, we must be willing to deny ourselves and follow him. He even went so far as to indicate that failure to do this will result in the forfeiture of eternal life. So it's spiritually essential that we adopt the theology of canines rather than felines. When we fail to recognize that we're not the master, then we become susceptible to a disease that I like to call self-itis. Now, originally I thought self-itis was a chialism. was just another one of these terms that I made up and I get to throw out here like I'm some sort of expert. But as far back as 2017, self-itis has been a term used in the mental health field to refer to people who obsessively take photos of themselves. And I know that among this audience, we have some people struggling with that version of self-itis. But that's not what I'm here to talk about today. You see, when you use the term self-itis, what you're ultimately saying is the inflammation of the self a condition that results in the inflammation of the self. And if you think about somebody who takes a lot of photos of themselves, takes selfies, they're struggling with some form of self-itis. But we're not worried about your camera trigger happiness. We're worried about your spiritual condition. Because self-itis, the inflammation of the self, is a harmful spiritual condition in which one promotes the glorification of himself or herself to the point of excluding, reducing, or supplanting God. That's my definition of what self-itis is. That's the working definition that we're going to utilize today. And we can sum it up in much simpler terms. Because self-itis ultimately boils down to self-worship. The first recorded case of self-itis occurred in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve decided to eat the forbidden fruit because they wanted to be like God. 
Adam and Eve wanted to glorify themselves by doing something that would make them like God, even though God had expressly forbidden them from doing that very thing. That's the danger of self-itis. It causes us to do things that contradict God's will. It may cause us to rationalize behavior that, that contradicts God's plan. That, that's what happened to King Saul way back in 1 Samuel chapter 15 when he rationalized sparing the life of the king of the Amalekites and their best livestock, even though God had told him to annihilate everyone and everything. Self-itis may cause us to refuse to complete God's mission because we don't like its parameters. That's what happened to Jonah. He didn't like the fact that God wanted to show grace to the Ninevites. So he decided to go the other direction. And self-itis may cause us to seek the praise of people rather than give praise to God. And that was the case of the Pharisee in that parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18. That Pharisee who lauded himself and degraded the humble tax collector while he was praying. That's self-itis. Self-itis is the inflammation of the self. Self-itis is a form of self-worship. And we may think that no one in this audience suffers from self-itis. No one who's a follower of God would ever suffer or contract self-itis. But you'd be surprised. So I want to escort us through a study of this disease today. And I want to start by considering how you can diagnose it. How do you know if you or someone has self-itis? It's, it's actually pretty simple. At least the, the easiest diagnosis that you can use for self-itis is to observe the speech patterns of someone. See, those infected with self-itis tend to use first-person pronouns in excess. Let me give you three diagnostic examples from Scripture. Let's start with a guy named Samson. He's familiar to us because Samson was blessed with incredible physical strength. And he used that gift of strength to defeat God's enemies. We know them as the Philistines. But Samson eventually forgot that his strength was enabled by God, and he began to believe that he was sufficient all to himself. This became evident after he initiated a relationship with Delilah. See, that's what I find interesting. When we look at Samson's story, we're quick to look at his relationship with Delilah, which was a really poor choice in a, a, a woman to chase. But we put all the blame on that relationship when actually Samson's undoing wasn't just limited to her. Now think back to that story as it appears in Judges chapter um, 16. You have Delilah on behalf of her countrymen because she is a Philistine. She's a member of the nation of the enemy of God. And on behalf of her people, she tries to find out the secret to Samson's strength. Now the secret is hair that had never been cut. He grew his hair out and never cut it. That's the source of his strength via God. That's, that's God's 
symbol for his strength, if you will. So she approaches Samson on multiple occasions asking for that secret. Three times in Judges chapter 16, Samson tells her something she could do that would render him weak. First she says, if you, if you tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings, I'll lose my strength. What does Delilah do? She finds seven fresh bowstrings and she ties him up. But he breaks free. Then he tells her, after she comes to him a second time, begging for the secret, he tells her, hey, it's, it's not, I, I, I was just kidding, it's, it's ropes. If you tie me up with new ropes, I won't be able to break free. Lo and behold, guess what Delilah does? She ties him up with new ropes. When the time comes, he breaks free. A third time, Delilah begs for the secret. He says, if you, if you uh, t- put my hair in, in a, in a loom, uh, well, let, me, let me get the right wording. If you weave my hair in the web of a, of a loom, then fasten it with a pin, and I'll be rendered weak. And she tried that one as well, but he was able to break free. Three times she begs for a secret. Three times he gives her a fake answer. And three times she attempts what he told her. So when she comes to him that fourth time, tell me the secret of your strength. Samson has to know she's going to do it. Samson, based on the evidence of the three previous occasions, Samson has to know that whatever comes out of his mouth is going to happen to him by the next day. Because that's the pattern. And so Samson, without hesitation, after going through three instances of her trying to find his weakness, Samson actually says it. He tells her, my hair's never been cut. If you cut it, I'll be weak. Now, in my opinion... I think Samson stopped believing that his strength was tied up in his hair. I think at this point in Samson's life, he just believed himself to be strong because he's Samson, not because God was the source of his strength. Do you know why I think that? Because if you look at the story after Samson tells Delilah about cutting his hair, full well, in my opinion, full well having to know she was going to cut his hair, look at what happens when she awakens him. And look what he says to himself. It's in Judges chapter 16, verse 20. When she awakens him and says the Philistines are upon him, he thinks to himself, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. His statement is focused on himself, and not once does he ever mention the one from whom he derived his power. You see, I think by this point in the story, Samson was no longer thinking, I am Samson because God empowers me. He's thinking, I am Samson because I empower me. So I contend that Samson's downfall was not so much a woman, but a self-glorifying condition known as self-itis. Samson's not the only one we can look at as an example. If you turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 13, you'll encounter another story in the life of Saul. 
You have to remember that Saul was a good king, a successful king, an excellent choice to serve as the first royal leader. That's how his story began. He was victorious as a military leader from the outset, as evidenced by his defeat of the Ammonites in 1 Samuel chapter 11. But Saul found himself facing a new enemy in 1 Samuel chapter 13. He's facing those pesky Philistines that Samson had to deal with. And in 1 Samuel chapter 13, the Israelite army was preparing to battle the Philistines. And Saul, with, with good intentions, he did not want to enter that battle without offering a sacrifice to God first. However, there's only one person authorized to make such a sacrifice. His name was Samuel. And he hadn't arrived at that military camp yet. Fearing that time was running out, Saul made the sacrifices himself, which was something he was not authorized to do. And when Samuel arrived on the scene, he chastised Saul for that decision. He said, what have you done? And I want you to notice Saul's response in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. It's all about Saul. His response is riddled with first-person pronouns revealing his interest in self-preservation rather than obedience. His words reveal that his primary concern was not what God wanted, but what he wanted for himself. So I contend that Saul also succumbed to self-itis when fear overtook his faith. Let me give you one final example. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a foreign emperor who was used by God to punish the Israelites for their disobedience. And Nebuchadnezzar had a unique opportunity to experience the power of God firsthand on numerous occasions. In Daniel chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar witnessed God's nurturing of Daniel and his companions. In Daniel chapter 2, he witnesses God's interpretation of his dream through Daniel. In Daniel chapter 3, he witnessed God's protection of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And this last incident prompted Nebuchadnezzar to issue a decree. A decree you can read about in Daniel chapter 3, verse 28 and 29, that states that anyone who spoke against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would be executed. So at this point, in Nebuchadnezzar's career, you're thinking to yourself, hey, this guy's got it figured out. He's going to be a follower of God. But even though he had witnessed the power of God on this, these numerous occasions, that did not prevent him from contracting self-itis. Because if you turn over to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30, you find out that one day he was walking along his palace wall, which towered above the city of Babylon. 
And as he looked out over his city and his kingdom, he thought to himself, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built for my majesty, by my mighty power. Once again, we find an individual in Scripture who speaks about his accomplishments without recognizing God's participation. Nebuchadnezzar contracted self-itis when he took credit for that which God provided. And as a consequence of his arrogance, he spent an unspecified period of time insanely living like a wild animal. I share these diagnostic examples from Scripture to show us that even we are capable of contracting self-itis. That even we are capable of inflaming ourselves, of self-worship. I want you to think as we walk through the stories of Samson, Saul, and Nebuchadnezzar, how that might manifest itself in your life. Have you, like Samson, started to believe that you're sufficient in and of yourself apart from God? Are you, like Saul, so focused on self-preservation that you let your fears trump your faith? Have you, like Nebuchadnezzar, taken credit for something that God has done when you should have been giving Him praise instead? You see, we're all susceptible to self-itis. We've talked about its diagnosis. Now let's talk about its prognosis. The prognosis for self-itis is not favorable. Since self-itis involves the elevation of the self to a position that is at least equal to, if not greater than, God, it is a form of idolatry. Categorically, it breaks the very first command from the Ten Commandments. The first command, according to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3, is that you shall have no other gods before me. When we contract self-itis, the God we're putting before the one true God is the self. Self-itis is a form of the ungodly and unrighteous conduct that Paul said caused God's wrath to be aroused against mankind in Romans chapter 1. If you look at verse 25 of Romans chapter 1, you'll see that Paul spoke about people who worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. That's self-itis. And Scripture indicates that if left untreated, the sin of idolatry is always fatal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, we're told that idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, idolatry is identified as a work of the flesh that will prevent one from inheriting the kingdom of God. And in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, we learn that idolaters will be punished in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. See, the bad news is that sulfitis is a fatal disease, spiritually speaking. But the good news is that sulfitis is treatable. The treatment for this debilitating and detrimental condition is a heavy and consistent dose of self-denial. 
Jesus made it very clear that in order for us to be his disciple, we must be willing to deny ourselves. But what, what does self-denial entail? That's where we're trying to get to today. What does self-denial require of us? Well, first, self-denial requires one to develop a deferential mindset. When some of John the Baptist's disciples complained about Jesus' increased popularity, John responded, John chapter 3 and verse 30, he responded by saying, He must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. John's words reveal his understanding that his mission was to prepare the way for Jesus, not share the spotlight with Jesus. Through his deference to Jesus, John demonstrated self-denial. And if we want to combat self-itis, then we have to do the same. We have to remember that God did not create us so that he could magnify us. He created us so that we could magnify and glorify Him. In Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7, God said that everyone who is called by my name was created for my glory. David called for everyone to magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together in Psalm chapter 34 and verse 3. And Paul instructed the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31 to do all to the glory of God. That's our assignment. That's our responsibility. That's our mission. To bring glory to God in all that we do. And any time we get off message there and start putting ourselves on the pedestal of glorification, guess what? We've contracted self-itis. When we start making life about ourselves and our agendas and our desires and our interests and our wills, you know what we've done? We've removed God from the throne of our lives and put ourselves on it. All the passages that I just mentioned indicate that our primary purpose in this life is to make much of God. And the only way we can do that is if we're willing to make little of ourselves. So we can conclude that self-itis treatment necessitates deference. But it also requires us to embrace a, a new identity. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul famously declared, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In other words, Paul claims to have undergone an identity transformation. Prior to his conversion, Paul's identity was wrapped up in his Jewish heritage. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Paul indicates his identity was tied to his nationality of the people of Israel, he says. It's, a, it's, it's wrapped up in his tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. It's wrapped up in his education as he identifies himself a Pharisee. It's wrapped up in his passions because he says, as to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. And it's even wrapped up in his religious obedience because he declares that as to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. His identity was completely wrapped up in being a Jew. 
But then he was introduced to Jesus on the road to Damascus. And everything that his identity was based on before that day no longer mattered to him. Because in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, after he had listed that resume of his Jewish heritage, he then says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, Paul is saying that his identity was transformed. It was no longer based on his heritage, no longer based on his background, no longer based on his upbringing. It was based solely on his relationship with Jesus Christ. So Paul indicates that he underwent a transformation. And you know what? You and I have to do the same. Here's the thing about an identity transformation, though. It's all about changing what has the greatest influence on who you are. For instance, if you love sports, then your identity is going to be closely associated with sports. And if you love a particular hobby, then your identity is going to be closely associated with that hobby. Do you know why? Because as one author said, you become like what you worship. So what are you becoming like that will tell us what you worship? So if we want to combat self-itis, then we must undergo, undergo the same identity transformation that Paul did. You know, the, the New Testament indicates that this is a requirement of a disciple. Paul told the church in Corinth, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He expounded on this concept when he instructed the church in Ephesus to put off your old self and put on your new self, created after the likeness of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 through 24. Such statements indicate that a change must occur when we become a follower. And such a change should manifest itself in the decisions that we make, the thoughts we possess, the words we communicate, the attitudes we demonstrate, the relationships we form, the places we go, the activities in which we engage. Because we stop living for ourselves and we start living for Christ. And that's why self-itis treatment necessitates transformation. But one more thing that self-denial requires of us is it requires surrender. Jesus was not exempt from this requirement either. As he agonized over his pending death while praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked God, to remove this cup from me. To put that in modern terms, he was saying, God, please find another way. But he followed that request by saying in Luke 22, verse 42, Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is in the garden begging God for an alternative solution but he's willing to surrender to whatever solution God settles on. 
Are you comfortable with surrender like that? See, Jesus made sure that his father knew that he would submit to his father's will regardless of whether or not his father's will aligned with his own. The Son of God demonstrated self-denial in his willingness to put God's will first. And if we want to combat self-itis, we have to do the same. We must be willing to surrender our will. As we've seen, the prognosis for self-itis includes a treatment plan of self-denial. Because Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In order to deny ourselves, we must be willing to adopt a deferential mindset. We must be willing to accept a new identity and we must be willing to surrender our will. The question that remains is whether or not you have undergone and continue to undergo the treatment that will prevent self-itis. There's a lot of people in the world that suffer from self-itis. And we can see it manifest in their lives in a variety of ways. I've told you before that... uh, through, throughout my youth, I played basketball. I love basketball. And because I'm a, a young man who was in middle school and high school throughout the 90s, I will forever believe that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. I want to share something with you about Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan definitely has selfitis. He obviously has selfitis. On one occasion, one of his assistant coaches tried to get him to pass the ball more. And that coach said, hey, Michael, there's no I in team. And Michael's response was, but there is one in win. That's why he was a 10-time scoring champion. Meaning, he scored the most points for 10 seasons of any basketball player in the NBA. His early years, he averaged some serious points per game. And it wasn't until he adopted a little bit of a different mindset that he could start winning championships. Do you realize that Michael Jordan has the most game-winning buzzer beaters of anyone who's ever played the game? He's the guy you wanted to have the ball in the hands of when your game was on the line. You may remember two of those game-winning shots. They're iconic. The first one happened against the Cleveland Cavaliers, 1989. My apologies to the Ohio-related people in here. This is not a favorite memory of theirs. As Jordan made a shot over Craig Elo's outstretched arm with no time left on the clock. Knocked the Cleveland Cavaliers out of the playoffs. This shot is so famous, so well-known, so iconic that it's simply called the shot. It even has a Wikipedia entry for the shot. 
The second most iconic game-winning basket of his career happened in 1998, the year I graduated high school. It's the one that Jordan made after crossing over Byron Russell, not pushing off, crossing over, and sunk a shot to win the NBA cha- his sixth NBA championship with the Chicago Bulls over the Utah Jazz. These are the two shots that are the most famous game-winning shots of his, his career. But for me, they're the, not the most famous game-winning shots of the Chicago Bulls dynasty. See, when I reflect back on the 90s and these, these uh, seasons that the Chicago Bulls won six NBA titles, these aren't the two shots that I remember. In fact, the first shot against Cleveland did not lead to a championship run for the Bulls. They lost to the Pistons in a later round. What I remember is a three-pointer made by John Paxson to clinch the 1993 NBA championship against the Phoenix Suns. And one reason I remember this shot, one reason it stands out to me, is because prior to John Paxson hitting this three to win the game, no Bulls player had scored a point in the fourth quarter except Michael Jordan. And this shot is set up as Michael Jordan brings the ball down the court and gives it up at half court with nine seconds left on the clock. Something you're not used to seeing him do. And he gave it up and that ball rotated around the team until it landed in John Paxson's hands and he drained a beautiful three-pointer to win their third NBA title. The second shot that I remember a shot made by Steve Kerr in 1997 to clinch the NBA title against the Utah Jazz. This one stands out because during a timeout right before this play occurred, a television camera catches Jordan talking to Kerr on the bench. Michael Jordan tells Steve Kerr to be ready in case he gets double teamed because he'll find him. When the play unfolds in real time, the television announcer is heard saying, it will be a scoop if anybody but Michael takes the last shot. And it's Michael Jordan time. Those were the words out of the TV announcer's mouth. The next thing you know, Jordan makes a move to the basket, and with a pump fake, he gets a decent look at the basket, but he doesn't take the shot. He passes it out to Kerr, and Steve Kerr makes a 17-foot jumper that seals the game for them. Now, I'm not up here trying to uphold Michael Jordan as some spiritual hero, nor am I trying to claim that he didn't suffer from some form of selfitis. I'm just using these moments in basketball history to illustrate the fact that the only way to overcome selfitis is to deny yourself. You see... Jordan didn't win six NBA titles on his own. He didn't even clinch every game on his own. He had these moments that were brilliant when he made the winning shot, but he also had these moments where he was smart enough to realize that he had to deny himself in order to gain the victory. What I want us to take away today 
is the realization that if we spend all of our lives refusing to deny ourselves, then we're not going to receive the eternal reward for which we've been working. At some point, we have to be willing to deny ourselves if we want the victory. That's the lesson that I took away from thinking back to my youth and watching this team win six NBA titles. It wouldn't happen if one player wasn't willing to occasionally, at least, deny himself. But for us, it's not an occasional thing. It must be an eternal thing. So this morning, as we assemble with this wonderful audience, both in person and online. As we gather here as a body of believers in the presence of our Lord, do you need to deny yourself? Or maybe the most important question is, have you ever denied yourself? Because isn't that what baptism ultimately is? A denial of self? Maybe today you need to make the decision to give up whatever kingdom you're holding on to so that you can seek first His. Maybe today, maybe today is the day that you need to start practicing this thing called self-denial. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know your hurts, your wounds, your baggage. But our Lord does. And He's begging you and begging me to follow Him. Won't you do that while together we stand and sing?
thank you everyone for being here today, especially if you're uh, visiting with us. We appreciate the fact that you're with us. ask that you come back anytime. Uh, before we're dismissed in prayer, we're going to sing a song. We're going to sing number 937. 937, I stand in awe. Uh, after the song, will be dismissed in prayer. If you would, after the prayer, if you would uh, have a seat. Uh, and we'll be dismissed uh, in rows so that uh, we can maintain distancing. Number 937. <clears throat> you are beautiful beyond God in heaven, we come to you as your children, knowing that we have you to thank for everything that is good. We pray that you would help us through your spirit this week to quit looking at ourselves as the source of the good things, but look to you, to not look to the things themselves, but to look to you, that we can get rid of our selfishness, that we can deny ourselves, that we can have you as the focus, and to see others as the ones who need our attention and need our love. In Jesus' name, amen.